Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I'll try to be sensitive each night to the fact that you have a lot going on. I try not to go too long. Uh, over the years, especially my daughters helped me keep me on track. That'll, that'll do it. You have children. And on more than one occasion, after I finished the message that went perhaps just a little bit longer than it should have, one of the girls would say to me, Dad, you might want to make that into a series. <laughs> and so what we're going to do a little bit this week, not tonight, but probably a couple nights this week, we are going to take one message and divide it into two. And so we make sure we cover it properly, but I trust to, to be a blessing to you as we look into God's unchanging word. Now, my introduction tonight to the message, I suppose, is probably not much like anything you've ever heard before, and that is that I feel totally, completely unworthy and inadequate to address the topic, the subject of tonight's message. We talked a little bit in Sunday school about a feeling of inadequacy, and when Saul, King Saul, that is, had that same sense of inadequacy when he was but a little child, when he believed that he could not do anything for God, that's when God used him. And then when he got full of himself, that's when God could not. But there are some topics and some passages in Scripture that just seem to be kind of that holy of holies. For example, and probably it's just as much my fault as anything, I've never, in all my life of preaching, I've never preached a message on John 3.16. It just seems that I would not be able to do it justice. And of course, those of you who have heard me over the years probably would say, yeah, brother, I could, I could see that. You probably would not be able to do that passage justice. I mean, it just seems to be such a fantastic passage that we, most of us, have put to memory. Well, the same is the subject of holiness. We've allowed some other groups to kind of capture that word from us, have we not? We've allowed different groups to so take it and almost abuse it to the point that we're afraid to ever speak on it or preach on it or even address the subject. In fact, as I was looking over the messages of the last few years, and your pastor was kind of kidding me about ones that he'd heard before, and I know that happens for all of us that travel, I suppose it's probably been 10 or 15 years since I preached the message that I'm going to bring tonight. And now you're even really more puzzled to think, yeah, so we get to be the guinea pigs to see if this thing's going to really work. It's just because I hesitate to even enter into this topic of the holiness of God because it is so far beyond us and above us, I don't even know if we could ever do it justice or ever comprehend what it means to even begin to understand the holiness of God. So probably tonight, more than any other message in my library of messages, I'll be quoting from quite a few other men who I believe can do a far better job than I in trying to describe something that is indescribable. I'm going to give you a lot of scripture, and I'll try to remember to give you each reference we may not take the time to look them all up, but at least if you'll write down the reference, you can on your own look up these passages and again, just be brought face to face with this topic, the holiness of God. 
I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 6, one of my favorite passages when it comes to the subject. And I'll read just the first five verses. Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The more we get a glimpse of the holiness of God, the more we see our unworthiness. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Holy Father, may your quieter hearts tonight. We're so thankful for the faithfulness of your people. May we go out of here tonight with a renewed appreciation of what the holiness of God means to each and every one of us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Generally speaking, when you hear a message even remotely mentioning the holiness of God, it, it's usually some preacher trying to kind of compartmentalize or prioritize God's attributes. We often do the same thing when I hear some ask this question, what's more important, your family or your ministry? Well, the answer to that is yes. God is number one in my life and everything else is tied for second. When it comes to the holiness of God, I believe we do God a great disservice if we try to somehow put God's attributes in some kind of order from highest or most important to least important. God is God. They're all important. His holiness, His love, His grace, His mercy. How can you possibly put one above the other? In fact, to be honest with you folks, I find no scripture anywhere in the Word of God that tries to prioritize God's attributes. But I will have to say to you that holiness is one that is probably the most incomprehensible. And let me start with that point tonight. Big old fancy word, the incomprehensibility of God's holiness. It is simply something that we can never fully understand this side of eternity. Who is like unto thee, it says in Exodus 15, 11, O Lord among the gods, who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. It was R.C. Sproul who said it this way, the primary meaning of holy is separate. To translate this basic meaning into contemporary language could be to use the phrase, a cut apart. Perhaps even more accurate would be the phrase, a cut above. Thomas Watson says it this way concerning God's holiness. No angel in heaven can take the just dimensions of God's holiness. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite writers of years gone by, so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church, with her worship and her moral standards, decline along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders 
its high opinion of God. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of Him. God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural mind and the natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire His wisdom, but His holiness He cannot even begin to imagine. Holy is the way God is. To be holy, He does not conform to a standard. He is the standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. We ask those difficult questions. Well, I, you say, I, I still struggle with the fact that God would destroy the entire planet with a flood. That would not concern you if you understood the holiness of God. But brother, I struggle when God on one day kills over 186,000 Assyrians. I just really have a tough time when I read especially the Old Testament and seeing what God does. You would not struggle with that if you understood the holiness of God. Well, I, I struggle when I see God passing through the land of Egypt and destroying the firstborn of animals and of families, of the king, the pharaoh himself, and all of the leaders and all the precious people in Egypt. I, I just struggle with that. You would not if you really understood the holiness of God. But 14,700 at one time during the days of Korah, that's just not the God I'm used to picturing as I search the Scriptures. I think we'd understand it if we could somehow tonight get a glimpse of the holiness of God. So first of all, it's incomprehensible. I find it almost impossible to describe to you as I've tried in the last few minutes. But secondly, I want to look in the Scripture at some of the images of God's holiness. The images of God's holiness. The first one is the fear of God. Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Kenneth Conser said it this way, if there is anything lacking in the American church today, it is a deep sense of humility and awe. As we as finite creatures stand in the presence of an infinite and holy God. At worst, we see a convenient God, one who will round out the comforts of our good life, all this in heaven too. At best, we look upon God as our buddy, our friendly companion, with whom we can share the joys of life. We need a lot more of the sense of awesome fear that gripped Moses as he stood before the burning bush. Or of Isaiah who cried out in awe, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of His glory. And yet we live in a world that seems to take the name of the Lord in vain so flippantly. And if we're not careful as believers, we get to the place where it kind of just 
like water off a duck's back. It really doesn't bother us like it used to. Isaiah 57, 15 reminds us, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. Every time we come across the word Jehovah in our song books, our hymn books, I'm reminded of where that word comes from. Did you know the word Jehovah is not a word found anywhere in Scripture? I mean, the real word. It's a made-up word. You see, for the Hebrew people, they felt the name of God was so holy that they would not pronounce it publicly. The name that we might say as Yahweh. But they felt that even to pronounce the name in public or in private was to be guilty of breaking the commandment of not using God's name in vain. So they did something very unusual. The Hebrew Bible is made up of consonants primarily, no vowels. That seems strange to us, but it actually works. But they took the consonants of Yahweh, they put the vowels of another word, Adonai, which means Lord, and they put them together every time they come across this word in Scripture. Well, a person that can understand the language would quickly look at that word and realize that's unpronounceable. It's the consonants of one word and the vowels of another. We can't pronounce it, and that was to remind them, don't pronounce it. Don't say it. It is simply too holy. It is the name of our holy God. We cannot simply even speak His name without our dying. And so that's where they got the word Jehovah. Jehovah is the consonants of one word and the vowels of another smushed together, but to remind us, that God is holy, and that His name, even His name, is incomprehensible. And then we see some of the attempts in the contemporary Christian music scene to try to be buddy-buddy with God. One song years ago now, Joan Osborne, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Blasphemy. Or Tori Amos, God, sometimes you don't come through. Do you need a woman to look after you? Back years ago, I guess it's been over 25 years ago no, uh, now, Tori Amos was asked the inspiration for her music. She said, well, I wanted to marry Lucifer, even though I had a crush on Jesus. We've gotten so far away from the holiness of God that oftentimes those things don't bother us anymore. We should have a holy fear of God. Not that we're afraid of Him, scared of Him. And of course, as was mentioned already tonight, the wonderful grace of God makes all the difference. And that's where we'll end up with this message tonight. But have we come to the place that we are at ease in Zion when the things that used to bother us, the things that used to make us blush no longer do? Have we lost our holy, reverent fear of God that perhaps we had at one time? Not only does the Bible speak of the fear of God, but it also talks about the face of God. As I read through the Old Testament, I'm amazed at how many of God's prophets and how many Old Testament saints believe that if they ever came into the presence of God, they would instantly die. That was the accepted understanding of the holiness of God. Abraham says in Genesis 18, 27 and 30, Behold, now I have taken unto me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Oh, let not the Lord be angry, 
and I will speak. Gideon in Judges 6.39, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak unto thee this once. Jacob comes to Peniel in Genesis 32.30 and says, For I have seen God to face to face, and somehow he is saying, But somehow my life is preserved. And God to Moses, Thou canst not see my face, for there is none that shall see me and live. Theologians love to get into this big discussion about whether or not you and I will ever see God. I'd be glad to listen to your opinion afterwards tonight. I really doubt that we'll ever see God as He really is, the Shekinah glory. We know, according to Colossians chapter 1, that in Him, that is in Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I believe that in a sense, perhaps we could say it this way, Jesus Christ is the shield between you and me and a holy God. That we cannot actually see God, but we will see Jesus Christ, who is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If God does allow us to somehow, some way, as human creatures to see Him face to face, then it's only because of Calvary. Even the angels here, the seraphim in Isaiah 6, they have to hide their eyes. Well, if holy angels cannot even look upon God, who do we think we are to look at His holiness? Gideon says in Exodus, or excuse me, in Judges 6, And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Again, the belief in Bible character after Bible character after Bible character was if we ever see really a view of God, we will cease to exist. Manoah says to his wife in Judges 13, We shall surely die because we have seen God. Daniel in Daniel 10, 17, For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? And John 1.18 reminded that no man has seen God at any time. There's the fear of the Lord. There's the fear that seeing Him face to face, you would cease to exist. Another picture we find throughout the Word of God as far as the, an illustration of God's holiness is the fire of God, the fire of His presence. In Exodus 3, verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, the place wherein thou standest, is holy ground. When God tries to picture His holiness, He quite often uses the eternal flame, His holiness, the fire. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai in Exodus 24, 16, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire. Deuteronomy 4, 24, For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24, I don't know if you've ever read parts of the message preached by Jonathan Edwards. It'd be worth your time sometime, the message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. We've kind of gotten away from that. I mean, obviously, we are thrilled with the fact that Jesus Christ and His righteousness has provided righteousness so that we can appear before God one day. That's not the way it was in New England. Jonathan Edwards had preached the message, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, on several occasions. 
The problem in New England was that the people were becoming quite self-sufficient. They become Christians, they believed the Lord, they had accepted Christ as Savior, but they had kind of learned to, because of all the severe winters and establishing the colonies, they'd been able to kind of pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they had a pride of what they had been able to accomplish. And they developed in their churches, Massachusetts, Connecticut, all over New England, what was called the Halfway Covenant. The Halfway Covenant basically taught that if your grandparents were believers and your parents were believers and you were a third generation, you automatically got in. You automatically were saved. And so after, you can imagine, after two and three generations, Jonathan Edwards and those that were preaching during the Great Awakening in this country found themselves in churches filled with unregenerate members who just kind of thought they got in automatically by virtue of the fact of their families. So Jonathan Edwards realized something has to be done. These folks in those churches, unconverted, unsaved, were at ease in Zion, taking it easy, just simply deciding to go in on the coattails of grandparents and parents. And so on several occasions, he preached the message that we now know sinners in the hands of an angry God. It did not always have the results that it did in Enfield, Connecticut. Of course, brother, anybody from Connecticut really deserves to hear a message like that. Amen. First few times he read it, there really wasn't much of a response when he did it in, uh, in Massachusetts a couple times. And by the way, he was not an oratorical type preacher. It is described as he would sit at a desk so if we had tonight, if I was trying to mimic or imitate Jonathan Edwards, I'd have a desk up here, I'd sit behind it, and he would read it, the whole message. And he had poor eyesight to add to all the other things that were going on in his life, so he did it like this. The whole message, describing sinners in the hands of an angry God. The people in the pew started to shake and tremble. Some yelled out in the middle of the message, but Brother Edwards, is there not mercy with God? Is there not mercy with God? And many came to know Christ as Savior that night who had been living in complacency because of this message. Let me read you just a little bit of the message to get an idea of the powerful language he used to try to get a point across. Thus it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it. And God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell. And they have done nothing in the least to appease or abate that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment more. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God. Your wickedness makes you, as it were, heavy as lead. And if God should let you go, 
you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to hold you up and to keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. Were it not for the sovereign pleasure of God, the earth would not bear you one moment, for you are a burden to it. Wow. Can you imagine listening and hearing that message for the first time? No wonder there were those crying out for mercy in the middle of the message. Again, A.W. Tozer can do a better job than I. Since God's first concern for his universe is his holiness, whatever is contrary to this is necessarily under his eternal displeasure. To preserve his creation, God must destroy whatever would destroy it. The holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of the creation are inseparably united. God's wrath is his utter intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. He hates iniquity as a mother hates the polio that would take the life of her child. God is holy with an absolute holiness that knows no degrees. Before the uncreated fire of God's holiness, angels veil their faces. Yea, the heavens are not clean, and the stars are not pure in His sight. Caught in this dilemma, what are we as Christians to do? We must, like Moses, cover ourselves with faith and humility while we steal a quick look at the God whom no man can see and live. We must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ as Moses hid himself in the cleft of the rock while the glory of God passed by. We must take refuge from God in God. One preacher said it this way, the grand paradox of all of Scripture, the supreme irony of the Christian faith, is that we are saved both by God and from God. Because if God in His holiness were to take us instantly out of this world, He would have every right to do exactly that. And yet we're told in the Scriptures we're supposed to imitate that kind of holiness. Be ye holy, we're told, for I am holy. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. I believe that once we begin to picture the holiness of God, sin will become more and more repulsive to us as it ought to be. Until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us, as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. And yet Habakkuk writes, Thou art, dear God, of pure eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. We need a deep sense of the awfulness of sin. We need to be reminded of the awful ugliness and repulsiveness of sin that shines through with the crystal brilliance in the writings of Moses and Isaiah and Paul and John. 
Could it be that the church today has lost a biblical sense of the awfulness of sin? I remember I was in a meeting in Kramer, Pennsylvania. During one of my messages to the young people, I happened to mention their music and how so many teenagers of their day use music as helping provide the answer to the problems they faced in life. And I said a few things, and I realized the young people were kind and gracious, and, you know, they were listening, but really not much of a response that I might have expected after it was over. The youth pastor came to me and said, Brother Bear, you probably wonder what was going on there. I mean, our young people were very courteous to every speaker, but you probably noticed when you were talking about the subject of their music that that really was not something that seemed to, at this time in their lives, be that much of a concern. I said, well, I did notice that. They were smiling at me, and some were even shaking their heads, but I didn't see any big response. He said, well, we were up at Northland two years ago, and, and we were in a, a youth retreat for a whole week, and a lot of our young people got right with God. I said, well, that, that's great. He said, yeah, we had a revival among the teenagers of our church, and they've come back, and they're still on fire. I said, that's great. He said, when we asked them to turn in decision cards so we could kind of follow up and see what kind of decisions they had made during that week of camp, it was amazing how many of the young people put down that they had made a major decision, first of all, about their attitude towards their parents. But then on almost every card besides that, there was something about getting right or getting their music right with God. They had turned it over to God, got their music right, and they're ready to serve the Lord. I said, well, that's fantastic. And I said, now, I do occasionally speak on music, not as much as our brother here, Doyle, but occasionally I would, especially to young people. And I said, is it possible, did somebody record the message on music so that I could use parts of it in my next message on that subject. And the youth pastor looked at me and said, there was no message on music. I said, oh, wait a minute. I thought you told me there are all these young people making decisions about their... I, I, that's what I said. But the theme of the week was getting a renewed view of God and His holiness. And once that was taken care of, all these other issues took care of themselves. Because I found that with our young people, if they begin to get a view of a holy God, it will transform their lives. And having to spend so much time in each and every little subject and each and every little sin that they face, that getting a view of God's holiness takes care of everything else. As a preacher, you always want to try to come up with some illustration that perhaps more than any other could help us to visualize what we mean by the holiness of God. And again, as I've already mentioned in my introduction, the message falls so short of that that again, I hesitate to preach this message and have not preached it that much. It just seems like something I can't get right. 
And yet I know it's important. It's a great subject we find in the Word of God, the face of God, the fire of God, having a holy fear of God. And yet in Christ, we know He is the answer. I've never heard anybody use this next illustration, and perhaps you have, but as far as I know, it's the only one that seems to do justice to the subject. Let me introduce it this way. I remember back when I was in high school, we had short stories we had to read. And one of them that I absolutely despised was The Lady or the Tiger. Anybody here ever read that? I hate that story. I said, why? Well, if you've read it, you know it's about this individual. I picture some kind of, you know, Colosseum type Roman Colosseum where You've got this gladiator out in the middle of this arena, and there are two doors in front of him. Behind door number one or two, he doesn't know which is which. There's a beautiful young lady, a damsel in distress. He has promised that if you open the correct door, you will have the young lady of your dreams, and you'll go off and live happily ever after. But behind the other door is a tiger, that will eat you alive. And so it builds up the suspense, and you know, like any good story, you gotta have drama. So it's building up this drama and building up this story, and as you're coming towards the end of the short story, you've got our hero going over to one of the doors, grabbing the handle, and the story ends. That is just wrong. (laughs) Who would do that? That's why I don't like the story, because there is no ending. You get to provide your own ending, I suppose. It depends on the mood I'm in. Do I want to live happily ever after, or to be eaten alive? But now let me get serious. There are before you and before me two doors. And you get to choose, and you, this time, know exactly what is behind each door but the choice is yours. Behind the first door, door number one, is your favorite sin. I'll not try to describe it for you. You know what it is. We sometimes call it a besetting sin. We sometimes call it a sin that we're constantly struggling with. We just seem to never get the victory. Oh, we might get victory for a day or two. We might get victory for a week or two, but then we're right back to where we started and we're right back in the middle of that wicked sin. I hate to call it our favorite, but let me use that word and I think you understand. It's the sin that you find yourself going back to over and over and over. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. I don't know what it is. You do. As I'm speaking to you tonight, I'm guessing that for most of us, there is a sin that comes to your mind. That's behind one of the doors. That will be one of your choices, your favorite sin. As you approach the second door, you can already, before you reach out for the handle, you know you can feel the heat. Because if you open the second door, you'll be plunged for all eternity into the lake of fire, the place we call hell. And so the choice is yours. 
You get to, and you must make one choice. You must decide one of those two things. You must decide, am I going to take door number one and enjoy my favorite sin again? Or am I going to be more like Moses that's willing to suffer affliction than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season? But it's, it's more than just a little bit of earthly affliction. We're talking about your willingness to make a choice that will last for all eternity. You either enjoy your favorite sin one more time or you go into the lake of fire forever. Now about this time in the illustration, you're looking at me like, brother, nobody would ever make that choice you're describing. I beg to differ with you. Because 2,000 years ago, that's exactly the decision that Jesus Christ made. He turns his back on sin so that God can turn his back on his son. And while he's suspended there for those three hours on Calvary, it's not that he went someplace to suffer our eternity in hell all compacted in three hours. No, it was not that he went somewhere. It is that the lake of fire came to him. It is no wonder then that God veils the cross in darkness because no one would be able to look on that scene. Because our Savior made the decision I've just described to you because he is so holy, so far above us, that if given the choice, he would reject any sin and suffer for all eternity on your behalf and upon mine. I'm so thankful we'll never have to make that choice because he already has. But I believe that until we understand that that decision that he made makes sense, then we still have a long way to go in understanding the holiness of God. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Very simple invitation.